Well, there's a, a story of a rich industrialist who was disturbed to find a fisherman sitting lazily beside his boat. And the rich man asked, why aren't you out there fishing? And the fisherman replied, well, I've, I've caught enough, all that I need for the day. And the industrialist asked, why don't you catch more fish than you need? And the rich and the, poor, the fisherman said, what would I do with them? Well, you could earn more money, came the impatient reply, and buy a better boat. You could go deeper, catch more fish. You get nylon nets, more boats, and pretty soon you'd, you'd have a fleet of boats, and then you'd be rich like me. The fisherman asked, then what would I do? Well, then you could finally sit down, relax, and enjoy life. And the fisherman replied, what do you think I'm doing now? <laughs> the story highlights the nature of true contentment, especially in our modern day. Contentment is a state of satisfaction or happiness, It sounds nice. I'd say that's what everyone is pretty much after, that little slice of happiness. Everyone wants to get to that point in their life where they can just sit down and relax and enjoy life. But I would say few seem to find contentment these days. It seems elusive to most. A person could be quite well off and yet still discontent. No matter how much they have, they're seemingly, they always feel dissatisfied. Part of the problem is that many people associate contentment with stuff. You know, if I just had this or that, then I would finally be happy. What's ironic is we live in an age where we, by far, possess the most stuff. Yet I would say we're the least content society ever. This is part of the deception of materialism. Materialism and covetousness have always been around. They're common desires of the fallen heart. But they're, they're greatly enhanced by the world we live in, especially today. You just think back several hundred years. Before the Industrial Revolution, first off, they didn't have as much stuff as compared to today. You know, the objects that many associate with their discontentment didn't even exist. There was no TV, no movies, no radio, no smartphones, no any phones. No video games, no internet, no cars, no light bulbs, not even electricity. And for many, discontentment is driven by all the things they don't have. And so before the modern era, that wasn't a huge category, but now it's a massive category. Just think about all the things you don't have, which you'd like to have, which it'd be nice to have. It's a a long list. And so you can see there's a far greater temptation to discontentment now, at the very least. And I think things are made worse by advertising. You know, with the rise of industrialization, you had all these manufacturers producing all these new goods, but these goods only make a profit if they're sold. So people have to buy all these new goods that before they didn't used to need, like coffee makers and coffee tables and glasses and coasters and picture frames and wall clocks, and the list goes on. But I would say, you know, some goods, they became essential, like a refrigerator, but the vast majority of the stuff in your house, you don't really need, like need, need. You don't really need it. You could live without it. So how do you convince people to buy all these goods that they don't really need? Advertising. And the goal of advertising is basically to convince people that they need this product to be happy, to be successful, to be satisfied, And advertising has always used two primary tools, fear and discontentment. You know, see how happy this person is driving that new car. That could be you. 
Now granted, you have a car, it works perfectly well, gets you from A to B, but this new car, it's, it's prettier, it's shinier, it's faster, it smells new. You know, if, if you get this, you'll finally be happy. And, that, and so it goes for most advertising. They claim to have the secret to your contentment, and it's found in their product. In reality, though, it's, it's all a lie. You may get that little rush of happiness from buying that new whatever, but I bet you've already figured out it doesn't last. That feeling doesn't last long. And it fades and can only be replaced by buying something new. And the never-ending cycle of discontentment goes for many people. And that's because they don't really have the secret of contentment. It's not found in products or stuff. It's not even found in status or relationship. Where is true contentment found? It is a secret. They do get that part right. But it's an open secret, meaning it's, it's available to all. It's just found in the one place most are unwilling to look, namely the Bible. God himself has openly revealed the secret to true peace and satisfaction and contentment in life. And this morning, by searching the scriptures, we're going to find it. So open your Bibles now, if you haven't already, to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. We're in a passage here near the end of Philippians, and Paul himself addresses what he calls the secret of contentment. And here at the end of the letter, Paul is trying to tie together the letter and he's revisiting his purpose for writing Philippians. Why did Paul write this letter to the Philippian church? One of his main reasons was to say, thank you. Philippians is is essentially a thank you card, an extended thank you letter to the Philippian church. Paul had been imprisoned in Rome and in large part, abandoned. He's awaiting trial before Caesar for the crime of preaching Christ as Lord. Then one day an unexpected visitor shows up, this guy named Epaphroditus, and he's come from the Philippian church, and he's their representative. They had learned of Paul's situation, and they wanted to show their love and concern for him, so they sent Epaphroditus to, to go visit Paul in prison, to stay with him, minister to his knees, his needs, rather. And they also took a, a collection, a love offering before, they le- or before he left, sent it with Epaphroditus just to take care of whatever Paul may have needed. So one of the primary reasons Paul writes this letter is to tell the Philippians, thank you. He's writing to let them know he, he's received Epaphroditus, he's received their gracious gift, and he's, he's so thankful for their gift, partly for the gift itself and partly for what the gift represents, namely that they they still care about him. They care about him, they care about the gospel, and he's thankful for that. Now that said, though, since Paul was writing to them this thank you card, he certainly was going to use the occasion to talk about a few other things, to address a few other concerns. Epaphroditus had let Paul know, surely, about some things going on in the Philippian church, some conflicts, some, some issues. And so Paul used some space in this letter to Philippians, uh, to the Philippians to address some of these issues. So one of the major issues was their unity, or lack thereof. We've seen that thread developed all the way through this little letter. Another big issue, though, was a combination of, I guess you could say, anxiety, fear, and discontentment. The church was going through a lot, it seems. Outside pressure and persecution was ramping up. There were some troublemakers on the inside as well, 
building up some pressure on the inside. And they were dealing with crushing poverty overall. Life was hard. So how did many respond? With fear, anxiety, depression, and discontentment. But Paul tackles these responses head on, and he battles them with what? With joy. In this short little letter, Paul brings up joy, joy in the Lord, the joy of the Lord, 15 times. It's known as the epistle of of joy. And he models for them true joy. He's the guy in prison, yet he models for them joy in the Lord. And he calls them and, of course, us to rejoice in the Lord. We saw this again at the beginning of chapter 4. There we learn that joy, true joy, it's not found in circumstances. It's found rather only in the Lord. But continuing chapter 4, we learn next that our joy is tied to our peace. God wants us to rejoice. He also wants us to, to live in peace. We should live in peace. We have Christ, the Prince of Peace. Instead of fear and anxiety and worry, we're called to peace. But where's that peace found? Well, similarly, peace is not found in circumstances. True peace is found only in the Lord. So the pattern continues. Joy, it's only found in the Lord. True peace, it's only found in the Lord. And next comes contentment. And I'm sure you can see how the three of these concepts are intertwined. Joy, peace, contentment. All three should characterize all believers. And then you can probably guess what Paul's going to say next. God wants us to possess joy. He wants us to possess peace. He wants us to possess contentment. It's a reflection that we really do trust him and are satisfied in him. So where do you think now we're going to learn that true contentment is found? Like joy, like peace, it's not found in circumstances, in the circumstances of your life, good or bad. It's found only in the Lord. This is, to be honest, it's a simple lesson, and we've heard it before with with joy, with peace. But it's a vital lesson, nonetheless, made all the more relevant by our our modern times. And so we want to spend our time now exploring this next lesson in Philippians, that we might learn this open secret of contentment. It's found in Philippians 4, 10 through 13. So let's, let's read that passage now. Philippians 4, look at verse 10. Right near the end, Paul says, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So Paul relates this lesson to the Philippian church. He does so by way of personal example, which he does a lot in Philippians. It's a very autobiographical letter, surprisingly in a way. And Paul, he often models for us Christ-likeness, that we would follow him as he follows Christ. Don't forget what he just said in in the verse before, from last week, verse 9. Remember, he says, the things you have 
learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So we're going to do that. Hear from Paul's example now of, of contentment. We would do well to learn from him and likewise practice this secret of contentment. And to keep things as, as simple as can be, let me give you two simple truths that reveal the secret of contentment. Two simple truths that reveal the secret of contentment. And the first is contentment is not found in circumstances. Like I said, it's simple. Contentment is not found in circumstances. And, and that really covers everything, as we'll see. The, the stuff of life, the circumstances of your life. Now go back to verse 10. Verse 10 kind of frames the discussion, plants us in the context of what Paul was going through. Again, it's another autobiographical section, so verse 10 gets us to speed. He says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you've revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Now remember, Paul was the one who planted the Philippian church. He got them started. Then eventually he left, carried on with his second missionary journey. But right after he left, Philippian church, they did something that most of the other churches Paul planted didn't do right away. Right from the get-go, they started to support Paul financially. From the beginning, they just they put their money where their mouth is. They wanted to partner in the gospel. And so they started giving to Paul like pretty much after he left, like right after he left. In fact, down in verse 15... He says, you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, that's the region, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. Philippian church, they really stood above the rest. And like I said, they put their money where their mouth is, which is why earlier in chapter one, Paul called them his partners in the gospel. They realized that they all could not necessarily pack their bags and, and be missionaries. But they sure could support Paul and, and in doing so, participate in the spread of the gospel. And they did this, keep in mind, in the midst of their poverty. The Macedonian churches were known for being the, the poorest churches. However, something happened. As the years passed, the support stopped coming from the Philippian church. And Paul may have wondered, I'm sure he wondered, like, you know, why, why did they stop giving? Did, did something happen? Is something wrong? Imagine you're a missionary, you're ministering halfway around the world, and your home church, they stop sending you that support that you rely on to, to eat, to live, and it just stops coming. Then just imagine you have no way of communicating with them. It'll take months. You'd probably start to wonder and even worry, like, did, did something happen to the church? Or did, did I do something wrong? Do they no longer care about me? Do they not want to support me anymore? I mean, you'd imagine those thoughts would run through your mind. And Paul, I would imagine, had these thoughts about the Philippians. Now, fast forward 10 years, because that's when he's writing. 10 years later, Paul, is, he's been in prison in Rome. But then here comes this guy, Epaphroditus, who shows up, and he's got a gift. It's a love offering from the Philippian church. And so what's that going to communicate? Well, it, it shows that they haven't forgotten about you. They, they still love Paul. They still care about him. They still care about the gospel. And this is why Paul rejoices, why he's so thankful at this gift. It came at, at a low time, 
And so in verse 10, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you've revived your concern for me. You see, he's not rejoicing the fact that he just got a bunch of money. He says that down in verse 17. It's not about the money. He's rejoicing because that the Philippian church, his old and, and beloved friends, they still love him. They still care for him. They're still concerned for him. And, and even more importantly, this gift proves that they still care about Christ. Right? If the church had abandoned Christ, they're not going to be given to Paul who's still preaching the gospel. This gift shows they still care about partnering in the spread of the gospel. And in that, he greatly rejoices. Specifically, he says the church has revived their concern for him. The term for revive is a botanical term. It describes a, a plant you know, blossoming again, goes dormant in the winter, and then in the spring it's revived and, and blooms. And one of Angel's favorite flowers is an orchid. And orchids, they're, they're nice and all, but most of them, they bloom just once a year. And so if you have one in your house, like we had one in our kitchen window, whatever, and uh, for about 11 months of the year, you're looking at a stick in a pot. And then for one month, you have a stick in a pot with a flower on it. Not my thing. It's a lot of risk-reward there. But anyway, for, for that one month, the orchid is revived. It's, it's back. And it was never dead. The plant was living. It just was dormant. The circumstances weren't right for it to bloom. But when they are, it revives. And so it was for the Philippian church. Their concern for Paul revived, was bloomed again. Certainly, they were concerned for Paul all along. But as Paul recognizes in verse 10, they lacked opportunity. But now the time was right. They had some funding. They, they heard about Paul's circumstances, and so they sprung into action. And in verse 10, Paul rejoices in this. All right, now look at verse 11. That, that's kind of just context. Verse 11, he says, though, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Not that I speak from want, Paul says, meaning not like he's rejoicing over the money itself. You have to realize, Paul, he's like walking on a tightrope here with this situation. Money is not inherently evil, but it can become quite a snare, certainly for, for pastors as, as well. Even in Paul's day, he mentions, back in chapter 1, there were many who were preaching Christ just for personal gain, for, for money. Back in that time, the ancient world, many philosophers and teachers, they would make their living by just giving speeches and teaching. People would support them in the marketplace. They would just be professional teachers. And many had jumped on the bandwagon of this new Jesus movement, this new Christianity thing that's going on. It's a new meal ticket. And Paul warns himself that that's a sure sign of a false teacher. The true shepherd, rather, must be characterized, he says in 1 Timothy 3.3, 3, uh, by being free from the love of money. So Paul, he's trying to walk the line here between being thankful for their gift while not appearing like greedy or overly concerned about the money, which he wasn't. It really wasn't about the money. It was about what the money represented. This gift, like, like we said, it proved their love for him, their concern for the gospel, and that's why he's rejoicing. So here in verse 11, he's not trying to be rude. 
He's just striking that balance, letting them know he's so thankful for the gift, but at the same time, that's not the source of his joy. He surely could have used the money. Yeah, he was destitute. But nevertheless, he says he was still, what? Content. He wasn't so concerned about the money because, verse 11, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. We'll see in a bit. Paul learned this the hard way. He grew up privileged, but ever since following Christ, over time, every comfort of the world had been stripped away from him. And these strained circumstances formed a test. Where is your joy found? Where is your peace found? Where is your contentment found? You'll find out when all your stuff is taken away. And Paul as he lost all of life's comforts, could have gotten depressed, could have cursed God, could have abandoned Christ and sought comfort in the things of the world. But he knew, he learned, those things don't satisfy anyway. Soul satisfaction doesn't come from life's stuff or even life's circumstances. Whatever the circumstances, Paul learned that his thirst for satisfaction, which we all have, was never truly satisfied in in the circumstances of life. I think I've said before, it's like drinking seawater. You know, those lost at sea, they get so parched, they're literally dying of thirst. And although they know better, they're sometimes they're so overcome with thirst that they drink the seawater. And what's the result? It results in momentary relief. Their thirst is Briefly quenched, but as you know, in reality, the more you drink salt water, the thirstier it makes you, and the more you drink it, the less satisfied you are, and you go back for more and more. You have to keep going back for more if you want satisfaction, but if you never stop, if you continue, it will kill you. And likewise, if you're trying to find satisfaction or contentment in the things of this world, like money, or possessions, or even relationships, you're always going to be left wanting more. Because these things, they, they never satisfy in the long run. They always leave you left out, or in, in many respects, worse off. Wisdom learns from the experiences of others. So learn from Paul that contentment, it's not chained to the circumstances of life. If it were, Paul could never be content. Right? Because he lost everything. He had lost everything. He knew some good times, yeah, but he knew some real bad times. He continues. Look at verse 12. He says, I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. Of both of having abundance and suffering need. You can see the contrast here. He had some real lows. He talks about humble means, going hungry, suffering need. He was brought low in poverty and health and destitution. There were times in his ministry he lost everything for following Christ. He reflects on such suffering in 2 Corinthians 11:27, where he says, I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst often without food and cold and exposure. 
That word means nakedness. Think about all the things you complain about in life today. And by the way, complaining, that's the expression of discontentment. You know, if you're discontent, well, you know if, if you complain. And think about the things we complain about. We, we can't really share that list. When's the last time you complained? Like, I wish I had access to drinking water or food or clothes or shelter. I wish I wasn't freezing it without any shelter. We, most of us, I would say, take these basic necessities for granted. These are some of the blessings of a modern world and a, a prosperous society. But now, though, we have more sophisticated complaints like, you know, I lost the charger to my phone. How will I live? <laughs> now, Paul, at the same time, he, he's not saying it's wrong to prosper. He mentions, likewise, he knew how to live in prosperity. He grew up in prosperity. He had seasons of rest, of comfort. Things were going well. This word for prosperity simply means you have more than enough. You have more than you need. It's like having more food on your plate than you could eat. You're, you, you've prospered. And sometimes in life, God prospers you. Paul, he says, he knew times of being filled and having abundance. So it, it's not wrong to prosper or to be filled, have those seasons in life. But even at, at that, even during those times, that's not where his hope was found. His, his joy and contentment, it's not like he's saying in those good times, like I knew happiness. No, he's saying it's irrespective of the highs or the lows. And so he keeps making the same point, which we keep making, in that contentment is not dependent on your circumstances. Your, your circumstances don't matter. He says in verse 11, he learned to be content in whatever circumstances. Verse 12, in any and every circumstance, he says, he learned contentment. That, that's pretty clear. In any and every circumstance. Life can and, and will throw at you any and, and every circumstance. Sometimes riches, sometimes poverty, sometimes sickness, sometimes health. But that shouldn't affect your contentment because your contentment should not be found in those things. Now, sometimes it is, but it, it shouldn't be. Listen, property, possessions, paychecks, power, prestige, pleasure, even people, these things aren't inherently bad, but they also can't truly make you content. They can't satisfy your soul. God never designed them to satisfy your soul. Everything comes and goes. And, and if your life is about these things, so they're going to go. And then, then what's left? You will sink into that depression and discontentment. We've learned this before with, with joy, with peace. It's all the same. If you struggle with discontentment, I would bet that part of your problem is you have elevated wants to the level of needs. You're not satisfied in life because there's so many things you, you need, you think you need, you just can't live without. You call them needs, but they're not technically needs. Again, most people, possessions, like I need TV to be happy, or a car, or an iPhone, or electricity, or air conditioning. I, I must have these to be satisfied. I can't live without these. Or going deeper, you, you often hear back when I was a college pastor, hear singles say, you know, I can't be content without a spouse. I need a spouse to like really be happy in life. Or maybe a young couple. Like we can't be fulfilled without kids. Like we need kids to really be happy. And so it goes. And these are all these are good things. But none of them are true needs. 
They're simply desires and maybe good desires. They can be good desires. But if you elevate them, you turn them into a heart idol. And essentially you're saying the Lord is not really enough for me. I need these other things to be happy, to be satisfied. Otherwise you'll be discontent. This, by the way, is why money is such a snare for people. Money is not the problem. People's sinful heart desires are the problem. Money, though, represents for people the means to satisfy those heart desires, to get what you want, to get what your heart wants. Money can buy that. You can control. If you have enough money, you think you can control all of your life's circumstances, security, health, food, you know, more. You, you can control it all. And that makes you happy, right? So you think. But see the danger. Scripture is clear. It's, it's not bad to be rich, but beware the deceitfulness of riches. Some of the most discontent people in life are some of the richest people in life. I mentioned how there were and still are false teachers who will use the gospel, Christ, Christianity, as a means of gain. They will be preachers of Christ for the paycheck and just try and get rich off of it. They were back then. There still are today. Paul exposes false teachers like that over in 1 Timothy 6. And just listen to what he says. 1 Timothy 6, verse 5 and following. He says, They are men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But then he says, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. And he, of course, is referring to spiritual gain. He says, for we've brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. It's just be content. It's the desire to always have more, to keep up with others, to, to have a higher status, the desire for more. It actually cripples people and all their lives can go by. And they never actually enjoy the true God-given blessings because they always want more. They're never satisfied with what they currently have. But recognize this is all a desire issue. It's all a desire issue. Let me keep reading First Timothy 6. He says in verse 9, he says, But those who want to get rich, those who want to get rich, fall into temptation and a snare. And many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But then he says, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and perseverance. You see, the issue, it's not about possessing money. It's about money possessing you. This is a heart issue. The problem is not with rich people. It's with people who want to get rich, like he says. They fall into temptation and many harmful desires. It's a desire issue. He doesn't say money is the root of all sorts of evil. He says the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And I trust you get the distinction. Your discontentment is really a heart issue. You have some heart desire that you've elevated above all else, 
And you might call them your felt needs, thinking, I need these things to be satisfied, to be happy, to be content. You've bought into the lie that without these things, whatever they are, you can't be at peace. And so you grow discontent when you don't get them, which just betrays in your heart the Lord. You might say this, but it just betrays in reality. He's not really enough for you. The Lord is not enough to satisfy your soul. You want something more. And isn't that just a form of idolatry? It's just heart idolatry. So has something captured your heart and eclipsed the place of the Lord in your life? And if so, diminish it. And replace the Lord as all you need in your heart. There's no true joy, peace, or contentment there. It's not found in any of life's circumstances. And that's the first part of this secret of contentment. Learn that lesson well. Contentment is not found in circumstances. Let's move on now to the second part of this not-so-secret of contentment. Secondly now, contentment is found in the Lord. Contentment is found in the Lord. I told you, I'm keeping it simple, right? It is as simple as can be. In verse 12, Paul alluded to this secret, he says, of contentment. In verse 13, gets to the heart of the issue. Look, looking at verse 12, he says, I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. In verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You remember verse 12, Paul references what he calls a secret, essentially of contentment. Complaining is natural to humans. Covetousness is natural. Greed is natural. These are all now a part of our fallen natures, the fallen heart of man. You don't have to teach these. These these come from within. But contentment in the Lord, that's a little different. It must be found. It must be learned. And Paul had learned where contentment is truly found. And he shows it to us. It's in the Lord. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The word for content, used in verse 11, literally it means self-sufficient. The word for self, word for sufficient, crammed together. Self-sufficient or independent. The ancient Greek Stoics used this word. That's what they were all about, the Stoics. Independence, self-sufficiency. They believed that was the secret to life, the secret to contentment. Depend on no one and nothing. Just depend on yourself for your joy, for your happiness, for your peace. Because people will let you down. Money will let you down. Just depend on yourself. That's the message of the Stoics. The secret to contentment is self-sufficiency. And they could have agreed with the first half of verse 13. I can do all things. Just stop right there. You're a Stoic. I can do all things. But the problem is that we too fail. Our own power runs out. Our our strength falls. We are not that actually sufficient. We're not dependable. And and what then? What happens when you fail? And this is not the secret of contentment. The secret comes in the second part of verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Here Paul takes this Greek concept of self-sufficiency and he spins it from self-sufficiency to Christ-sufficiency. 
from dependence on self to dependence on, on God. That's the secret. Contentment is found in the Lord. Ironically, though, you all know this verse. I'm sure you see in posters and little antique stores, you see a little poster, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, and it's a great verse to memorize and quote. It's often, though, this is one of those verses, it's near the top of the list, often quoted and used like way out of context to mean like almost the opposite of what it means. It's used by some as a blank check verse. For example, you know, imagine a person, he's in a tragic car accident. And he's crippled and told he will never walk again. I mean, he severed his spinal cord. But he uses this verse to convince himself that he will walk again because I can do all things, right? Through him who strengthens me. Now, don't get me wrong. That's, that's a good hope. And our God is, is mighty and gracious and a healer. And he should pray for healing, absolutely. But that's just not what this verse is saying. Or at least that's not what this verse is promising. Rather, the right application of this verse to that person will be to understand that I can now live as a paraplegic through him who strengthens me. That's the point. And that's much harder in a way. But that's the promise. This is not a promise that you will get out of all bad circumstances like poverty or sickness. It's a promise, though, that God is still with you and Christ will strengthen you to endure all things, that you can still be content even if you were put in a wheelchair. This is the greater response. God is glorified when a person can go through a greater trial and they're not healed, they're not delivered, they're not rich, but they still honor God and trust God and believe in him and love him, and they still possess peace and joy and contentment, even if they're wasting away in prison like Paul was. Remember his circumstances while he's saying this. Now, again, don't get me wrong. It's not, pro, it's not wrong to pray to escape bad circumstances. Of course, this whole concept of contentment doesn't mean you, you don't act to improve your circumstances. Meaning, like, if you're single and you desire a spouse, it's not wrong to seek a spouse. If you're poor and you desire a better living, it's not wrong to get a better job and move up. If you're sick and suffering, it's not wrong to seek out medicine and healing. That doesn't mean you're not content. Being content doesn't mean you don't act to improve negative circumstances. And of course we do. Remember, contentment is an attitude issue. Your heart attitude is the issue. And contentment is all about a pervading attitude of trusting God and being satisfied in what he has provided right now whatever that may be. Now, I'll tell you what, though. The real test comes of this attitude. Are you really satisfied in God? Is God enough for you and his provision, whatever it is? The test comes when your desires aren't met. Think again of Paul. Remember his thorn in the flesh episode, right? Remember that? He had this thorn in the flesh. doesn't tell us what it is. It's some great affliction. What does he do about it? Well, he prays that God would remove it. And that's only natural. That's what we'd all do. And that's, that's not inappropriate. It's, it's right to pray, Lord, can you take this away? Can you remove this negative circumstance? There's nothing wrong with that. But the real test comes when those desires aren't met. Paul had a desire to escape suffering, but God said no three times. 
God would not remove that thorn in the flesh. Why not? Well, God gave Paul some special insight through direct revelation. We don't get that luxury, but Paul learned, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. So look, God had his reasons for leaving Paul with his affliction. And likewise, God has his reasons. We don't always get that word from heaven like, here's why. But he has his reasons for leaving us with sickness or suffering or singleness or poverty or whatever. Your desire to escape those negative circumstances is not wrong. We all desire to escape negative circumstances. The question is how you respond when those desires are not met. The wrong response is discontentment, which, again, simply reveals you desire that thing more than you do to honor God, to serve God, to worship God. You've replaced what should be, as Christians, our our greatest desire, which is to glorify God. You've replaced that desire with something else. And that's your problem. And until you fix that problem, you will never have the joy and the peace and the contentment we learn in Philippians. But the right response, as we've learned, take it to the Lord in prayer. Let your request be made known before God, but then just accept God's will, whatever it is. And if you do this, trusting in him, he says he will give to you this joy and this peace and this contentment. And so listen to Paul's response after God said no to his thorn in the flesh. How did he respond? Paul says back in 2 Corinthians 12, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. That's, that's called the high view of God and Christ and God's sovereignty and his plan that we are vessels for his glory. And sometimes he'll bring us low, but as we retain joy and peace and contentment in the valley, a great light shines that couldn't have shown before. And so God often uses our negative circumstances to drive us to him that we might trust him more and depend on him more. And those are expressions of faith and worship. God will give us the power and the grace and the strength we need to endure whatever circumstance comes. And as we do so, resting in his hands, we find a supernatural joy, peace, and contentment come over us. Just think of Israel in the wilderness. Remember, God provided for them manna from heaven, miraculously provided for them. But he gave them just enough manna for one day. He literally gave them daily bread that they would learn to live by faith faith, and trust God every single day for their provision. But do you remember if someone got greedy and tried to hoard some manna, do you remember what would happen? It said it would rot and fester and decay. They were literally forced to trust God daily. We need to learn that lesson as well. And this is sometimes how God teaches us the secret of contentment. That's the hard way, but hopefully you'll learn this lesson. And hopefully you don't forget the lesson because the day may come when God prospers you. Some of you here may not be sick or suffering at all. You might be doing just fine and prospering. 
But for some people, that's a bad thing because that means they quickly forget the Lord. Just like Israel in the wilderness, as soon as they got in the promised land and settled in, they forgot all about God. Many people, when, when crisis hits, you know, they're praying, they're depending on God, they're, they're super spiritual. But what crisis resolved, no, back to this normal life. God goes back on his shelf and he's that distant figure in their lives. Learn this lesson. Trust and depend on God daily, rich or poor, high or low. Really, the sooner you realize that you aren't in the driver's seat of your life, the better, right? God's in the driver's seat. You're like the kid in the back seat. That's you. And the sooner you learn to just trust God who's at the wheel, the more peace you'll have in life, whether you're going uphill or, or downhill. Just trust the driver, God, the driver. He's already told you the destination. He's told you where you're going, right? You've, heaven awaits. You're just, in that regard, you're along for the ride. And that gives you peace to, in a way, just enjoy the ride. Up or down, you can enjoy the ride. I can do all things through him, through Christ, who strengthens me. This is the higher way, the secret of contentment. And speaking of Christ, in him, you have the ultimate proof that God, he does care about you. He is concerned about you. You have no reason to doubt him. He's proven his love for you and that he already sent his son Christ to live a perfect life, die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, rise three days later, that we might have new life by believing in him and him alone. And so as you do that and believe in Christ, you inherit eternal life, you inherit Christ himself as your Lord and Savior. And he becomes our life's greatest treasure. We've learned that all throughout Philippians, back from the beginning, where Paul himself said, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If knowing Christ transforms death into gain, then you can say, in a sense, right, life is all good. What do you really have to worry about if Christ just transformed our death into gain? Do we really have any reason to be discontent? Being content then is just an issue of setting your mind on things above and remembering these truths. If you set your mind on things of this world and you're consumed by all these desires that you have of self, you're going to be discontent sooner or later, and it's going to show itself by complaining, like I said before. Like the Jews in the wilderness, they were self-focused, so they were discontent, so they complained. And by the way, is it any wonder that it's in Philippians where Paul calls them out for what? For complaining. Philippians 2.14, he tells them, do all things without grumbling and complaining. So you, though, set your mind on things above. Remember Christ and the salvation he purchased for you. Trust God in all things. He will produce in you contentment, which shows itself through thankfulness. The The discontent person complains about everything, but the content person gives thanks about everything. Which is you? Which do you want to be? You know which honors the Lord. We rejoice in the Lord. We find peace in the Lord. We gain contentment in the Lord. So seek the Lord. Contentment is not found in circumstances, but only in the Lord. A simple message, remember it. The promise is not that everything will go your way or that you will get every desire. 
But the promise and the good news is God has already given you the only thing you truly need, which is Christ. The only thing you truly need for this life and the next is Christ. And if you're in Christ, you have all things. You've been richly blessed. If you have Christ, you always have a reason to give thanks. You could be in utter poverty, dying, no one left. You have a reason to give thanks. You have Christ. You have everything. And in him we are content. He will strengthen you in all circumstances. He can never be taken away. And as you trust him, God will reveal to you the secret of contentment. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray. Our great God, we, are, we praise you for this word this morning, your word which, which reveals to us great mysteries and secrets, which in, in the end, Lord, they're not secrets at all. You've made them clear, loud and clear through your word, testifying in our conscience. We know these things to be true. And here we learn the secret of contentment, Lord. You, you, you are a good and gracious God, and you want us to reflect your own joy and peace and contentment, especially in Christ. We should have joy and peace and contentment. You've already done the greatest thing. You've provided for our ultimate need, Lord, which is not food and water and clothing. Those are temporal needs, but we're all going to die. We need Christ. We need forgiveness. We need new and eternal life. That is our greatest need. And for free, by grace, abundantly, you have met that need, Lord. Our needs are met in Christ and more so. So you now have given us a reason to give thanks. And as we cling to Christ, make him our heart's treasure, our soul's desire, we have all the joy in the world and perfect peace and true contentment. Come what may. Lord, this life is a life of tribulation. We know there will be ups and downs. And some here are in those times, up or down. I pray you speak to the heart through the word preached, convict them and and just point them to Christ, that they need to connect with Christ more and seek him in their heart as their treasure to find the joy that their heart is looking for. And as they find that joy in Christ, you will be glorified. They will be blessed. And so may that characterize your people here. Bless us as, as we honor and glorify your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.